I want to start today by asking one of the most basic questions regarding our Christian faith. And I want you to give a one-word answer in your own head and try to remember those very basic questions to see whether or not you are a Christian and see if you know the very basics of our Christian faith. One-word answer, whatever comes to your mind, hold on to it. What did Jesus do? Next question. How did he save us? One word answer. How did he save us? Next question. From what did he save us? Next question. To what did he save us? From what and to what did he save us? One word answer. How then a person, a sinner, can be saved? How can one be saved? One word answer. Last question. What should characterize Jesus' people, God's people? One word. What should characterize us, you? Okay, that's the, that's the quiz. Very simple, very basic. Did any one of your answers have the word obedience in it? Raise your hand. I want to see. Some of you probably thought about it. I asked this question to tell you something. And in the order of worship, we've been thinking about justification. But just as we have done even today, I wanted to give you the other side of uh, the Christian life. What did Jesus do? Jesus died for me. How did he save us? By going to the cross. From what did he save us? From the wrath of God, judgment of God. To what did he save us? For heaven? How then a person can be saved? By believing in the gospel promise of Christ. What should characterize Jesus' people, God's people? Holiness or love, things like that. But I want you to know, all these questions could be answered also through the lens of obedience. Very important topic today. How did Jesus, what did Jesus do? He obeyed God's will. How did he save us? By going to the cross, yes, but by obeying the will of his Father. From what did he save us? Answer doesn't change. But from disobedience, which leads to death. To what did he save us? So that we could obey God. To obedience. How then a person can be saved? Yes, by believing the gospel promise. But that could also be looked at from this angle, by obeying the gospel. What should characterize God's people? Most people would say church people should be nice, good people. But I would say Jesus' people should be characterized by obedience, by your obedience. Presbyterian Christians, conservative Presbyterian Christians, that's us. We are very sensitive about the word obedience. Why is that? Because we know salvation is by faith, and faith alone, as we talked about in justification. 
not by works. If you know anything about evangelical Christianity, you know that salvation is by faith and not by works. So when you hear the word obedience, immediately you think about works. After all, if you are saved by grace and by faith alone, people ask, what is the point of obeying God? That sounds like mosaic period or Catholic church. You emphasize obedience, obedience, obedience. People are sitting there feeling very uncomfortable, saying, no, it is by faith. It is by faith. But notice that we are not emphasizing obedience to be saved. But what we are saying is because you are saved by faith, what happens afterwards? That's the question that we are asking. Last week, we talked about how holiness is not an option. Many people say we are saved. So no matter what happens, however way that I live in this world, I will be saved. So holiness for many Christians is an option. It doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. But the Bible verse that we read from Hebrews 12, 14 said, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Because we are saved by faith, works do not matter. That is what you think. When God's word, when you read God's word, you will understand that false dichotomy will not stand. Why are we so afraid of the word obedience? There are a few reasons. First reason I can think about is how people, especially preachers and pastors, would reduce the gospel into justification. As I said last week, justification would be the first among equals. But the heavy emphasis on the justification only will make people feel very, very uncomfortable in dealing with what we are trying to say. I've talked about this once. I remember going to Florida. You know, as you know, I talk about this often. Sanford, Florida. That's where Ligonier Ministry is. And I went there for I don't know how many years, summer and winter, for a week or two weeks, doing my demon there. And I don't know if you have seen the videos, if you've been there. That Ligonier campus is beautiful. They have few buildings, and there's a lake. And you could walk around the lake. It is an artificial, man-made lake, but I will not go down just in case if there's an alligator in it. But after lunch, after coffee break, we will just walk around. And in the same, on the same campus, there's a church called St. Andrews. It looks gothic, but it is really a modern building. So one day, we, some of us, three, four of us, walked in just to see. I mean, we've, I've seen it before. But after that uh, lunch break, we were just walking, and we walked into that church, and in the entrance, there is a scroll, scroll of Hebrew uh, Bible. And you walk in, there's that St. Andrews. And what you will notice in that church would be big and huge pulpit. Huge pulpit. Pulpit is up on high. And that 
the size of the pulpit is just, just, just magnitude of it is just huge. It's like a building size. And some of us, we wanted to take a picture. And I, being a humble one, the only humble one, I didn't go up. But the rest of the guys in their 40s and 50s, they go up and they were taking pictures like this. And boys would be boys, and they were making all kinds of faces and gestures and going up one by one and taking pictures from under. There's a huge pulpit. I didn't go up just, just for the deference of it. But right in that huge pulpit, there is the mark. The mark, huge mark, is a um, symbol of Lutheran church or Lutheranism. It is a flower budding out. I don't know what flower that is, rose, maybe Lutheran rose, but there's a, there's a big flower. Calvinistic churches back in the day of Reformation, the symbol of Calvinism was hand going up with heart in it, going or giving my heart in devotion to our God. But Lutheranism has Lutheran flower with the heart in it. And that tells a lot. I tell you this because many people listen to R.C. Sproul and his favorite subject is holiness and justification. Even I, was the, we were the last class that we were able to sit under him for about a few hours. By the time he was too old and too weak, 2011 or so, he was carrying oxygen tank everywhere he went with a pipe going into his nose. And he would carry it around and drag it around. And he, that's his favorite topic. So if you listen to a person like R.C. Sproul, he will emphasize holiness and justification. Justification, justification, justification. And you get the impression justification is the gospel. You know what our emphasis is in Reformed churches following Calvinistic tradition. Yes, justification is important, but what do we emphasize? We emphasize union with Christ. That is really a bit of different emphasis. And Luther has emphasis on union with Christ as well. But if you listen to, let's say, Sproul, he will talk about justification. Well, he will talk about other things too. And I don't want to say he is a Lutheran. Obviously not. Of course not. But when popular teacher says justification is the important, most important topic then people have this idea. Justification. Justification. Another reason might be for those of you who grew up in church. When you are a child and your parents are Christian parents and pious Christians, they will bring you to church every Sunday. And they will ask you to go to certain camps or conferences, evening services, and all of that. And when you are young, you may not understand why. So when you grow up like that, you get a wrong impression that I had to obey for the things that I do not agree now as an adult. So I've seen many, many cases when people describe their gro uh, growing up in a church, their past life, as something that I had to obey, and they would call it legalism. I had to do that, I had to do that, and I didn't like that, but I still had to do that because I was young. But when I have a choice, 
I don't want to do that. So any kind of word obedience, they run away. Any kind of impression of obedience. If preacher says obey, they run away from it. But whatever it is, let's carefully look at what I am trying to say today. I want to show you from the scriptures that the obedience is not an option. It is not antithetical to our faith. And at the heart of Christian faith lies the idea, or I should say reality, of obedience. So a few things. You could sit there and listen or if you have your Bibles, whatever, you can follow along. But what I am trying to show you is obedience is at the heart of your Christian life. Number one, the question, let's go back and ask this question, is what did Jesus do and how did he save us? Cross of Christ, death of Christ, yes. But did Jesus come as an adult and went straight to the cross to die? No. Jesus came as an infant, baby. How many years did he live on earth? About 33 years. 30 of those would be as an anonymous, pious man. We don't have full details of it, but in the last three years of his public life and public ministry, we know what he said and what he did. And listen to some of the things that he said. John 5, this is Jesus speaking. I, Jesus, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Next verse, John ten eighteen. No one has taken it, take it, taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative, my life. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So I seek to do the will of Him who sent me. Point is, He will obey the Father's will. I could take it, I could lay it down, I could take it up again. He's talking about his life. I could do that on my own. But he says, this commandment I have received from my Father. What, what is he going to do with that commandment? He is going to obey that commandment, though he could do it on his own strength. Matthew 26, 39, he was praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So what does he do after prayer? Well, he obeys the father's will. His will was to escape from the wrath, cup of wrath. But because this is father's will, he will obey. Last verse that I want to give here in this section is this, Hebrews 5, 8. Although Jesus, he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So what did Jesus do? 
How did he save us? We could think through the lens of his obedience. It's not like he went straight to the cross just so that he could die. No, for 33 years on earth as God-man, according to the Bible, all the things, what did he do for 33 years? In one word, he had to learn obedience in preparation for the biggest obedience that he would render unto God. So no obedience, no cross, no salvation. You take obedience out of Christ, it crumbles down. How did he save us? By going to the cross and dying on a cross for us, for our sins, correct? But how does the Bible describe that? In Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In describing his work on a cross, we, we talked about this. Philippians 2 says he humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient to the point of death, he says. So we have to think about Son of God in heaven before he came down on earth. His humility, emptying himself, coming down as an infant baby in Bethlehem. Why not in Jerusalem, the biggest city, urban setting? What well, is because of Micah 5 too. But he was born in a humble setting, humility. And from then on, it is not an exaggeration to say he had to prepare and prepare and prepare for 30 years too obey his biggest commandment that he has received from God, that he will die on a cross. So little obedience here, little obedience there, and he's growing in his obedience. It is the same thing as growing in his holiness too, even though he was sinless, so that he was prepared to be obedient, to become obedient to the point of death. So how did he save us? By becoming obedient to the cross and the death on a cross. That's how you could look at it. From what did he save us? From the wrath to come. To what did he save us? To what? To what did he save us? Well, we could say he saved us so that we could go to heaven. Or we could say heaven starts now as we believe. But remember that famous Ephesians 8 passage, 2.8. In one stroke, he says this, For by grace, that's where we start, by grace, you have been saved through faith. There, there is that justification by faith alone. By grace alone. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. What is faith is? Not of works, clear. Not of works, so that no one may boast. So there is no place of works in salvation, in a narrow sense. Why? Because it is for by grace you have been saved through faith. There is that. Faith alone, grace alone. 
no works whatsoever as far as the salvation in a narrow sense is concerned. But that following verse says something very interesting. Paul, Apostle Paul, does not stop with justification. Verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You have to see the whole picture. Which God prepared beforehand, what? Good works. God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. For the rest of your Christian life, you will walk with him. But you will walk in good works that God prepared for us beforehand. So if you are going to look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, you have to receive the whole picture. By grace, by faith, no works, so that no one may boast, but that's not the end of the story. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So if you would ask me, from what did he save us? From disobedience. To what did God save us? Before heaven. Yes, we will go to heaven so that you could bear the fruit of good works. So if you take good works out of Christian life, is that a, is that a picture of biblical Christianity? No, it is not. You do not have to be so afraid, and we've looked at from Calvin's Geneva Catechism. After salvation, our works matter. So, if you go from Ephesians 2.10 and upward, if we don't see, if God does not see good works, we have to question your faith, whether that is a faith, saving faith or not, because according to that, Ephesians, if you are saved, if you are saved by faith alone, yes, which is a gift from God, you will and you must bear good works that God prepared beforehand. So why are we here, if you would ask? What's the purpose of church? It is so that people could be saved through faith and by grace, but so that we could bear good fruit or do the good works that God prepared after salvation. That's what we are here for, to do good works, which God prepared beforehand. And I hope you don't say in your heart, no, 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 it's about justification. No, 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 it's about faith and faith alone but also for good works. I think it's the, at least the last question here. So, how then one can be saved? If somebody asks you, how can I be saved? I want to be saved. How would you answer that person? When you evangelize, what would you say? You would say, believe, right? Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you will try to explain what that means. But I want to approach that from a different angle. Angle, But it's the same reality, which comes from Romans twice. We talked about this a few times. Romans 1, verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship, this is Paul speaking, to bring about, to bring about what? The obedience of faith. He does not say to bring about faith among all the Gentiles. But he says, I am here. My apostleship is for the obedience of faith. 
16, 26, he says again, to all nations leading to obedience of faith. What does that mean? Obedience of faith. Very difficult to understand. Because it's genitive and you could have so many interpretations. But I'll give two interpretations. Reformation study Bibles, Ligonier Ministries. It says this on that verse. Faith implies obedience, submission to the call of God. John Murray, very famous theologian, says this. Obedience of faith. What does that mean? He says this. It is subjective act of faith in response to the gospel. The obedience which consists in faith, not as works, but by the nature of case, the saving faith will have some aspect of submitting to that gospel call in subjective sense. Faith is regarded as an act of obedience, of commitment to the gospel of Christ. So the application, implication is this, he says. It's not so that people could commit emotionally to the gospel or purely intellectually. I agree. I agree with whatever you say. There's more to it than that in saving faith. And he says this. What he's talking about is the commitment of wholehearted devotion to Christ and to the truth of his gospel. It may not show immediately, as you believe. Obedience of faith will mean that there is submitting to the gospel call and commitment to Christ. So saving faith is not merely, I agree. I agree. I tried this out. I tried Islam. I tried Buddhism. I tried New Age. I tried whatever, but I like Christianity. That's not saving faith, as you could tell. There has to be trust, some measure of trust, some measure of submitting to that call of repentance. Uh, last question is this. What should characterize Jesus' people? You will say love. If someone walks into our church, I hope people will feel the love of God, love of Christ. But is that the only one? Holiness? Yes, good. But also, we should be characterized by obedience. We should be obedient Christians. So, Ephesians 2 will say this, one and following. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of flesh. So, current generation, well, each generation, people who are outside of Christian faith, they are characterized by the Bible with the word, a phrase, the sons of disobedience. Not simply sons of no faith. Not the sons of different religion. Not the sons who are not interested in Christianity, but the Bible describes them, people who are outside of covenant community, sons of disobedience. 
And we know exactly what it means. What they are disobeying is the gospel declaration. Gospel declares this, this, and this. And they reject those. And by rejecting, they are disobeying God the Creator's call. God the Redeemer's call to repent and believe and be saved. Colossians 3, 6 again. It is because of these things things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So how should we be characterized? It's not that we love each other only, love newcomers only, but when they see you, they should be able to see that man or that woman obeys God, unseen God, because God said so. John Murray, one of my favorite, he describes the entirety of Christ's work of atonement with the word obedience. So far, I try to show you from various passages and angles that the obedience you do not have to be scared of. You do not have to run away thinking that it is legalism. Who's talking about legalism? Nobody is. But simply to show you take the obedience out of Christ's life and work, there is no cross. Because the Bible describes going to the cross as his obedience to the Father's will. And let me give you just a few, uh, few words from the confession. You know what I will do? I will consult Westminster Confession to see how did that Puritans see obedience. Let me, please allow me a few more minutes. Now, I'm not going to read entire paragraphs, but I want you to hear this. Just to show you, we are not talking about legalism, not introducing works, but works for the Christians after the conversion. Listen to this. How they describe various topics in the Westminster Confession. Talking about chapter 8, Christ the mediator. How do you characterize or describe Christ? In this way, fifth paragraph says this. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself. Did you hear that? Confession does not say regarding Christ, Jesus died for us, simply. But by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up unto God, has fully satisfied the justice of his Father. That's how the confession will describe Christ, with the word obedience. Not simply dying on a cross, but by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself. Now, justification. In describing justification in chapter 11, paragraph 3, they put it in this way. Christ, by his obedience and death. Isn't that interesting? They will keep bringing up the word obedience. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt. Let's talk about saving faith. 
chapter 14. What is saving faith they are describing? One of the characteristics of saving faith is this, yielding obedience to the commands. But the principal act of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone. Good works. Let's go to good works. How do they describe good works? These good works done in obedience to God's commandments. We know we have to do good works because that's what God prepared beforehand for us. But how do you do good works in obedience to the commands? Faith. Good works. What connects them after faith, salvation, and good works is your obedience. You take obedience out, that's, that's not a Christian life. What about assurance of salvation? Chapter 18. It is duty of everyone and many duties so that you could be assured of your salvation. One of the things that you must do to be assured of your own salvation is this. In strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience. The proper fruits of this assurance. You want to have assurance of salvation there has to be some measure of obedience in your life. Obedience brings joy in your life. What about Christian liberty? Christian liberty, even in that paragraph, it talks about their yielding obedience unto Him, not out of slavish fear, but a, but a childlike love and willing mind. We think about Christian liberty as doing whatever I want to do. According to them, your Christian liberty, God has given you the liberty so that you could obey God's commandment as a child of God. True and full liberty of a Christian is in your obedience. That's your water, your fish. But your water, you breathe in, that is obedience. The last one here is religious worship. What are we doing here? According to them, this is what worship is. Chapter 21. The reading of scriptures, one of them. Reading of the scriptures with godly fear. The sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word in obedience unto God. Worship for them is obeying God. How do we obey? How do we worship God? By obeying what God said to us, what you should be doing. Right, let me give you one more. What, baptism. What is baptism? Being baptized. It says this. Not only that, do actually profess faith and obedience unto Christ, but the infants as well. So adults who are baptized, for them, is not simply I profess my faith, but profess faith and obedience unto Christ. So his, this is my conclusion. Westminster Confession of Faith cannot and will not separate or recognize faith in isolation from obedience that follows. It's distinct. Faith first, then obedience. But you cannot ever, ever separate obedience from that saving faith. You take that out. 
as you have heard, and I hope you heard, from the word and tradition, that it is not a sound Christian life. Today's passage characterizes what Jesus has done for us. Romans 5.19, which is in your bulletin, says this, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Christ's work was work of obedience. Christ saved us as children of wrath, disobedience, sons of disobedience. Now we are sons and daughters of obedience. God has given us liberty so that we could obey, free from sin, entangling sins. We worship so that we are worshiping God in obedience to God's commandments. You want to grow in your assurance of salvation. How can, I, how can I know that I'm saved? Work on that strengthening of your obedience to God. So when you think about Christian life, your Christian life from A to Z, from the beginning to the end, salvation is made possible for you by the obedience of Christ. Then shouldn't we? if we are made righteous because of his obedience, one man's obedience, second and the last Adam's obedience, who is characterized by obedience, shouldn't we obey God? Shouldn't we obey God's commandments? I think it's very important that you as a Christian, that you decide to obey God. That's the way. That's the only way you could avoid legalism and antinomianism. And that's the way you could safeguard your joy in your heart. If you come to church and pastor always says, do this, do that, do this, do this, you must do this. It's very difficult to hear every Sunday like that. You feel guilty all the time. But if you are a Christian, knowing the will of God for you, and you have decided to obey God, I'm not your mother. I'm not your father. In a sense that I will always tell you what to do. Or this, should do this should be done. You should do this. You should do that. It creates the atmosphere of legalism, even though I don't want to. But if this church is going to grow in the gospel of freedom, you should obey God's command by God's grace in your own life. And each and every one of you come here by obeying God, then this will not be a nuisance to you. Annoying words from the pulpit, always hearing this and that, you and you, are, you just, just don't want any of that. That's not a right Christian life. Chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. How do you do that? By obeying. You glorify God by obeying God's commandment. What's the great commandment? To love God and to love neighbor. Isn't that God's commandment? Shouldn't we then obey? What's evangelism and missions? Is that the great commission? Shouldn't we obey that? You see, what about the fruit of the Spirit? 
You obey God's will, and the rest God will take care of. You obey, you know, deep inside of your heart, and from your own Christian life too. As you obey God, your joy in Christ grows. People think the other way. You run away from obedience, thinking that there is a greater joy in somewhere, some out, somewhere out there. No, no, no. Grace joy will come as you obey more and more. Greater commandment, you obey more and more in proportion to your growth in obedience to God's commandment. All the love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control will come to you. I want to live my Christian life in a joyful manner. I want to enjoy my Christian life. I know you want to do. You want to too. What should we focus? You go home today and see what areas that you should be obeying more. Obey. Obey God. Obey God's commandments. That's how you grow. That's how the church will grow. That's how covenant children will grow. That's how I will grow. That's how you will grow. That's how God will be glorified. And we could enjoy him in a great measure. Let's pray.